Welcome to BNY Mellon Investment Management's Conversations On, a podcast series where each week we take a deep dive into some of the most pressing topics in financial markets today, featuring the views of our economists and fund managers. Thanks partly to the impact of globalization over the past two decades, emerging market countries have accounted for an ever larger share of the world's GDP. In today's podcast, Insight Fund Manager Colin McDonough asked whether COVID-19 has derailed the emerging market growth story. Could there be trouble ahead for the world's up-and-coming economies? Him and BNY Mellon Investment Management's Chief Economist, Shan McDar, discussed these thoughts in today's podcast. Hi, Colin. Great to chat today. I hope you're surviving lockdown well and effectively. I think we're going to talk about emerging markets today. Yeah. Well, I mean, lockdown, I'm sure it's not easy for anybody, but uh, the world carries on. So, yeah, there's lots to talk about in emerging markets, I think. So, I mean, I get asked a lot about what EMs look like in a post-COVID-19 world. I mean, the question is often put, is, is the shortening of supply chains and reshoring and all of that, is, is that a major threat to the future of emerging markets? I guess it could be. I mean, I think there's a, a reasonable amount of uncertainty about how any of the global economy is going to look after this, because it's, it's a pretty difficult one to try and think through. I think in terms of reshoring, it, it's clear that an awful lot of countries are going to have to rethink through their strategies, because in times of crisis, if you've got very short supply chains or you're reliant on other economies, that can become a bit more complex, both logistically and, and politically. And I still think that it's something that has to, to play through a little bit more. So if you look at through the lens of supply chains, then yes, there might be some difference over time in that. I do think many of the emerging markets will probably look a little bit more interregionally. So if you're in Asia, for example, then we've seen an increase in interregional trade rather than you know, the export model to the rest of the world. So that will continue. I think the, the political angle, too, as well, is something that has to be thought through, because if suddenly your business model is based on exporting or trading with some partners, whether that be Europe or the US, and if that suddenly becomes under threat, then you've got to think that through. So I think right now everybody's going through the same exercise of saying, how do we rebalance our economy? looking forward over the next few years to make sure that we don't run into similar issues that might create either a big fiscal or domestic political risk. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I guess the a new world was kind of emerging anyway, I, I guess. There was a degree of deglobalization going on before COVID-19, but I think COVID-19 just accelerates some of those trends. We might say a degree of regionalization, I guess, because my own feeling is that Yes, supply chains will shorten globally, but they may well just diversify as well. I mean, the main issue, obviously, is between the US and China. And my guess is that a number of countries, the US and a number of other European and other countries, may well just look to diversify away from China a bit. You might end up with a bit more regionalization in a sort of Asian trade block, a US-led trade block, and a, and a European one. And therefore, the opportunities for, for EMs don't disappear entirely, but they, they may just reshape. And of course, some, some EMs in Asia, I'd have thought, might well benefit, if you like, from that diversification as well. I'm thinking places like Vietnam in particular. I think you're right. I mean, I think it's been going on for some time before COVID anyway. We've been, like many others, have been thinking through this theory of, if you think about how the global financial or trading architecture is changing over the last few decades, clearly the US has been such a dominant factor for so many people. And even in financial markets, then the US financial system has been pretty dominant. But we were kind of evolving into, rather than having a singular or bipolar world with US and Europe, the emergence of China and Asia has, has really changed. So we've been thinking through how 
you've got three different dominant centers of monetary policy, economic policy, and probably currency policy. So you do end up with people in the Americas trading a lot more with the US and in Asia, it's increasingly becoming apparent that for many countries, the more important trading political and economic relationship is with China. So I think we're evolving into that sort of tripolar world, you know, before COVID and yeah, it might accelerate it. That's fascinating. Um, so you, you've seen that already and it's kind of affecting your investment decision-making. You know, it was, it was doing that before COVID-19 and COVID-19 has just accelerated that. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, it's something that we've been aware of for a while. Let me give an example of how we're thinking this through. So if you think about the emergence of the euro bond market many years ago, it was really to tap into the savings that people had in dollars outside of the US. So we were just thinking through that a little bit to say, okay, how is the emergence of that market? And could we see something slightly different? And when we think about what China's trying to do with the one belt, one road policy, then clearly they're trying to increase their, their soft sort of influence and economic influence well outside its borders. So if you start having these different logistical routes being built and partially financed by China, do you end up where the world increases its renminbi savings offshore? And in which case could you see the emergence of a, the equivalent of a, a dollar euro bond market in the renminbi euro bond market? So we think it through the prism of a lot of emerging market countries and, and ultimately some corporates. Are they in the future, are we going to see a slightly different financial architecture, which has been very dollar centric over the last number of decades. That's, that really is, fact. yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that's a great analogy. And to some extent, I suppose the US is going to resist that or at least act differently towards China going forward. You know, it's pretty clear that, that obviously the narrative changed around about 2015, 2016. But something like, you know, the One Belt, One Road, sorry, the Belt and Road program, it, you know, whereas that was, I think the sort of US and Western approach to that was one of benign neglect maybe 10 years ago. Now, it seems to me that there's, there's perhaps active, you know, active, not confrontation, but, but not active engagement in the way that there was before. Well, yeah, there's competition there. And to a certain extent, you know, we would take the view that a country like China is really learning from what the US has done over a long period of time. And there's many ways to increase your global reach. And, and one of those, I mean, I know it's been called the exorbitant privilege of the dollar, but the fact that the dollar is a reserve currency really does actually convey some quite meaningful power on the US. And so the Chinese, I'm, I'm sure, have noticed this. And they're also trying to figure out a way in which they too might have a reserve currency, because that brings with it an awful lot of, of hard power and soft power from an economic perspective. And it certainly conveys an awful lot of advantages. So part, I'm sure, intertwined with the One Belt, One Road strategy and, and certainly engaging and providing financing to lots of countries, whether that be in, in Europe, you know, Middle East, Africa, and Asia. It's certainly something that they would like to have a bigger part in the global economy than probably was in the past. And from, from a US perspective, which has had, quite honestly, a position of, I mean, it hasn't had many challenges in that regard. It's certainly something that they have to think about and will continue to think about over the coming years. And I think that's partially why you're seeing that level of engagement ratchet up and, and will continue to be the case going forward. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, that is a clearly a, a long-term ambition of the Chinese. I suspect it might be some time before they can achieve the full, you know, sort of the, the full range of what they're hoping to do. In the short run, it seems to me the dollar, you know, the dollar shortage has reappeared and reappeared during, during COVID-19, a 40 or particularly in, uh, in March. 
And maybe that's just hammered home to, to other countries, just how dependent on the dollar, if you like, we seem to be. And it seems to me in the, in the short and the medium run, it's, it's almost been a bellwether of global financial stability. The dollar rises whenever, you know, financial stability is under threat and falls whenever things get a bit calmer. And that seems to be quite a significant issue for the world as a whole. It's an unusual factor that comes with that, isn't it? Because suddenly when you have the preeminence of the dollar and suddenly enough other companies or countries finance themselves in dollars, then as the Fed has discovered over the last number of years and probably discovered you know, through the, the, the crisis in the 90s, that they can't just look at their own borders when it comes to a dollar scarcity and they actually have to take actions for the rest of the world if that dollar scarcity exists. So we saw that in the global financial crisis, the Asian crisis, obviously in the tequila crisis. And even more recently, then the provision of dollar swap liquidity to you know some other key large economies is now part of their playbook. So sometimes there's a bit of an internal criticism within the US, why worry about what's happening elsewhere? But if suddenly the dollar and interest rates and treasuries are affected by the actions of lots of others, then that becomes an issue. So it, there's kind of, um, there are many things to consider in terms of having your currency as a reserve currency and predominantly used in the global financing market. If you start introducing some other reserve currencies into that, and, and quite honestly, the only one that really could get those characteristics might be RMB over time, then that might be slightly more beneficial. I think even seeing what is happening in terms of global bond indices, you know, investors who would never have looked at emerging markets, certainly now global investors in developed markets, China is a considerable increasing part of their bond indices. So that sort of process is ongoing and will continue to accelerate. Uh, but you're right, it will take a period of time before it becomes more meaningful. So just broadening out a bit, I mean, one of the words that I heard, you know, before COVID-19 struck, whenever we were talking about EMs, you'd hear this word idiosyncratic crop up a lot, i.e. that EMs were no longer this sort of cohesive bucket that, that investors could sort of address in the round, that you had to be discriminating, if you like, when you, when you, when you talked about EMs. I mean, do you think COVID's accelerated that as well? And do you think there are countries and sectors that you have to sort of examine completely separately and, and, and take a lens to quite distinctly from, from others. Yeah, I think COVID has probably just reminded people that when talking about emerging markets, I mean, it is an incredibly diverse asset class. You know, you go back 20, 25 years ago, the concept of emerging markets was, it was much smaller. And typically, if you got some volatility in one part of the world, then elsewhere in emerging markets, you see that volatility play through. There's been such a big change over time, both in terms of the dispersion of economies, in terms of how how they've evolved, the strength with which they've evolved, the economic size, also the political systems. And now it's be, become much more regional for a long period of time. And, and quite honestly, 2015, when there was volatility in Brazil, then investors in Asia didn't really care about that. So I think what, what's really evolved over time is that people are not treating emerging markets as, as one bracket. Instead, it's been subdivided into lots of different parcels. The investor base has also dramatically changed. It's no longer the purview of, of an international investor group. Now, in many cases, domestic investors are much more important and significant. So the rise of you know, pension funds and mutual funds and insurance companies in places, for example, like Brazil or Mexico or, or parts of Asia, they are the marginal driver of demand and supply. So I think it, it's become... Yeah, but COVID has really accentuated how each of those different components behaved. Look, even economically, Asia being first into this and the way that they've dealt with that are probably going to be the first out of that. And contrast that with somewhere like Latin America, where 
they probably haven't dealt with the challenge as well, either because of the structure of the economy, the structure of the political system or the choice of the political system. So even in those two extremes, you can see how differently do these economies are behaving because of COVID. So COVID is a shock to the system. And whenever a shock happens, that exposes the, the strengths or the frailties across the emerging market universe. Yeah, spot on. So, I mean, are you thinking, I mean, a, a lot of people, including me, are looking at, you know, slightly concerned at, at countries like Brazil and India, to some degree Turkey, less concerned maybe about some of the Asian countries, your Indonesia's, your Vietnam's, etc. Is that is that the kind of classification that you're thinking about as well in, in terms of the disease in particular? Because one of the things I've been saying is that actually the, the nature of the recovery, wherever you are, is largely determined by the course of the disease. From here. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're clearly looking at this pretty closely like most other people. And, you know, we managed to get daily information on the rate of infection, but also the rate of testing and the, and the fatality rate. And there's some quite material differences, even within regions. So in Latin America, you're right, places like Brazil and Mexico are, are still probably pre-peak. In contrast, when you look at places like uh, Uruguay, you just wonder how it's slightly different there. Or somewhere like Peru, which is a very strong economy, but of course their health system might be slightly overwhelmed. So I think that the management of, of COVID depends on a number of factors, the fiscal strength when you go in, but also structurally, what your health system looks like. In some emerging markets, the informal economy is quite big too. So even think about it from a social perspective. In a developed market, if there's a lockdown, you might get some support payments from the government. In some emerging markets where there is a large informal economy, then if you don't work, you don't eat. So there's very different incentives and very different social outcomes. I think that's why you're getting such a divergence between, as you said, India, Indonesia, Iran, Saudi, Brazil, Mexico. Whereas if you look at the Eastern European economies, how they sort of dealt with this, or some of the large Asian economies, it is, it is materially different. I think this is some way to still play out. I think that asset prices are, are probably reacting in, in a different way to the underlying fundamentals for, for different reasons. But the outcome of the economic lockdown and damage is yet still to be seen. And we even saw with the IMF coming out being bearish a few months ago and, and becoming even more bearish in terms of the growth outlook. I still think that we don't have clarity on where we end up in terms of the growth shock and the fiscal shock. So there's a lot of uncertainty still to play through. Yeah, again, absolutely. And, and obviously, I, I guess this is being reflected in policy responses as well. You know, they differ quite a lot, it seems to me, between EMs, according to how much fiscal and monetary space individual countries have. I mean, as a group, I suspect they're a bit more constrained than developed economies are, especially in terms of fiscal space. But, but you know, even there, I think there's quite a lot of you know, variation amongst emerging markets. You've got your high deficit countries like India with about 15% of GDP, I think, fiscal deficit this year. But others, again, it seems to me largely in South Asia that have that, been able to respond more flexibly and a bit more like a number of the developed economies. As you say, I think that, that in part reflects the, the state of health systems apart from anything else. You're also, you know, the, some of the larger uh, emerging markets who have what I describe over time as reasonably developed sort of policy institutions. They've taken a leaf out of the developed market books. So what the Fed and the ECB have done for secondary markets has been you know, quite extreme in the sense that they're providing so much liquidity to make sure that those markets are functioning correctly. Some of the large EM economies, and not just based in Asia, have also done the same, where they've actually taken a big fiscal response, a big monetary response. And on top of that, they supported it with some other measures. 
that might be QE in some cases. In some cases, they're not calling it QE, but they're calling it bond market support. So I actually think that the variety of responses in some of the large EMs has actually been, been pretty good. And I, had you said this to me 10 years ago, I would have struggled to think that they would have reacted in, in such a good fashion. But really what anyone's doing at the moment is trying to manage the initial shock. That's really all people are, are focused on. It's how you exit from that crisis management is going to be quite interesting because if you increase your fiscal deficit by 10%, then you need your growth to bounce back because you're increased at GDP, you need a higher growth rate to pay that down over time. If that's not the case, or if there's permanent loss to the economy, then that becomes more challenging. And by this extraordinary fiscal response that we've seen in, in many places, it has to be dealt with on the other side. It's the same for developed markets as it is for emerging markets, but in some emerging markets, they don't have that flexibility. I mean, China, it's wrong to talk about emerging market, but they have led the way in terms of using an awful lot of um, different policy tools to achieve what they need to do. And, and I think they've done it in a pretty good way so far. But I think if you look across the rest of the emerging market spectrum, they may, may not have the same flexibility. So it's not just an Asian construct. Look at some of the Eastern European economies in terms of the fiscal stimulus they've done. There's even some, let's call it an imaginative balance sheet management being done by central banks in places like Indonesia, or maybe even Brazil, arguably. It's on the other side, the exit strategy from this, which I think is going to be a big determinant of the distinction between emerging market economies over the next five years. And I think you're going to see some big distinctions being made from a credit risk perspective. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and that's, that's the point I was you know, saying that, it, that even if you look at the, you know, the variation in the fiscal and monetary response of, of different emerging economies, it, you, you get quite a, quite a different picture. And I, absolutely, Indonesia, Mexico, Turkey, they've done this sort of QE-like measure, i.e. bond support without expanding uh, balance sheets quite, uh, as dramatically as, as, as the developed economies have. So they, they potentially have more room to do that, it seems to me. Yeah. The, the other thing, of course, which, is, which people t- you know, still have to figure through is what part of your policy mix does currency play in all of this? But again, that's caught up in in significant global politics as well. I mean, ultimately, if you are an economy that faces a shock, then one of your policy tools, apart from cutting interest rates, is to allow your currency to weaken so you get that competitive advantage. That's less of a tool when everybody's exposed to the same shock. So I think that that's why that's been more of a challenge for many of these countries. And what happens on the global scale in terms of how currencies realign over the next one to two years will inevitably have a big impact on EM asset prices. But the policy tool of weakening your currency to get that competitive advantage doesn't exist the same way as it might have done if you were just one country where you'd experienced a shock. That's yeah, that's a very important point. You're absolutely right that when you've got a global shock like this, currencies don't don't really bail you out. Um, if anything, you know, to come back to the point we were making earlier, the fact that there's you know the dollar shortage emerged, and all of a sudden some of those sort of large carry trade positions from you know in countries that have been borrowing heavily in dollars suddenly looked. A little bit more vulnerable than they had been and that's that's one indicator that we've been looking at as well when we're trying to sort of gauge if you like uh individual emerging market vulnerability to to sudden reversals of capital flows that kind of thing um and again it seems to me there's quite a quite a big difference between emerging markets uh when you when you kind of look into that metric in particular it makes it more complicated too when as part of that kind of analysis in some countries their remittances play a reasonable part of the current count as well. And the second round effect, of course, is that if you get a slowdown in some of the larger economies where many of these workers are, what impact do those lack of remittances have 
when they flow back to their domestic country. I mean, th there's so many different second, third round effects of all of this that still have to be played through, I think. I could go on like this for ages, Colin, but, you know, I guess we're running short of time. Can I just, uh, can I just raise another issue with you? ESG, um, that's become the sort of prism through which lots of investors are taking a view about whether or not companies are, are worthy of their capital. Where do you think EMs stand in this area, in this issue? And do they have a lot further to go? Or again, is there a lot of variation amongst the EMs and you have to, you have to kind of look at them individually? I think it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of variation for sure. I think when it comes to the way we look at this, there are three different ways through the, the corporate um, bond market, but also increasingly through the sovereign bond market. And I think that the the language and articulation around ESG for corporate investment has been reasonably well developed, firstly from developed markets, but now increasingly more in emerging markets. You know, when we speak to clients and they're trying to understand either ESG or sustainable or impact type strategies, quite often we're asked the question, well, you know, how can this apply to emerging markets? But actually in emerging market, you know, the issuers themselves have figured out that, you know, there's a whole pool of investments which is looking for companies that score well from an ESG perspective. So there's probably a lot of value in terms of looking at some of the EM companies, uh, some, not, not all of which are covered by the traditional external providers and trying to understand the ESG metrics. So I think that's something that is not delayed by, by COVID. It's something that was ongoing for a number of years anyway. I remember a few years ago, you know, our credit analyst team, part of what they do is they send out questionnaires on ESG to corporate issuers. And they said, look, we're going to send this out to some of the emerging market corporate issuers. And I was a little bit skeptical, if, if truth be told. I was like, fine, I mean, let's, let's do that. I'm not sure we're going to get much response. But I must admit, I was completely wrong. We've, we've got significant response from many of these issuers because we sent out a questionnaire to try and evaluate what they're doing. And, and if you think about the fundamental economic analysis that we do on either sovereigns or corporates, for years, we've always incorporated environmental risks or governance risks in emerging markets. I think the measurement of social risk is something that's evolving over time. Now we've a language around it, which means that, you know, from a practical point of view, some of the largest defaults in emerging market corporates over the last few years were actually driven by ESG factors. It gets a bit more complex from a sovereign perspective because the incentives for sovereigns are slightly different. Nonetheless, we're beginning to see over the last couple of years, a number of these sovereigns understand that there is a market for either social financing or green financing. So I expect that to continue because clearly we're seeing from a client perspective an increased interest. Uh, it used to be just or, or mostly a European concentrated interest. Now it's, it's now happening right through Asia, Europe, and then increasingly in the US. So I think that the sovereign side is less evolved. It's harder to measure, but um, sovereigns are engaging. And we're doing the same thing. I mean, we're going out to sovereigns and saying, if you issue uh, true green bonds or true social financing bonds, then we will have interest. And there's some of our mandates that, that can only invest in those types of, of issuance. But I think it's it's far less evolved a conversation among sovereign issuers than it might be among corporate bond issuers. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating distinction. And when it comes to the sovereign issuers, you know, I think there's been a bit of a political sea change. If you go back, if you go back 10 years, then, you know, the general view of your China, Brazil, South Africa, Russia was that, hang on, this is how you guys developed. And now you're trying to get us to try and, uh, you know, go through, go through a different path. Why should we? Uh, but in the past, seems to me, past three to five years, there's been a pretty dramatic sea change in attitudes, particularly in China, I suspect. And 
you know, since it arrived in the green bond market in particular, the, the sector's grown hugely, hasn't it? I think it's about $30 billion to open that from virtually nothing. So, so you know, that's, um, that's, that's interesting. Sorry, no, I was just saying that China through COVID was fascinating because clearly the level of pollution in China has become a domestic political issue over the last number of years. But when COVID and lockdown happened, then suddenly people began to see the other side of not having the amount of traffic. So it'll be quite interesting to see, does that sustain itself post the immediate crisis management and exit of lockdown? Of lockdown? Yeah, I had, I had a good friend who was working in Hong Kong for a major bank in Hong Kong. He could tell, he said the first time he actually, he, he genuinely knew there was a big crisis brewing in 2008, 2009 in Asia was when he could see much further up the Pearl River than uh, he ever had <laughs> been able to from his from his office before. And, and I think you're absolutely right. The authorities have really reacted to what's been a sort of popular popular understanding that these levels of pollution are just not sustainable. Um, Colin, that's been absolutely fascinating. I think we could have, I could have gone on for a lot longer, but um, I'm conscious of your time apart from anything else. Thanks very much. Is there anything, you know, before, before we wrap up, is there anything that you wanted to chat about that we haven't chatted about today? I don't think so. As you said, I mean, it's, it's actually fascinating. There's so much going on at the moment. I could probably get another cup of coffee and, and sit down and talk for a while. Um, but, you know, the, the outcomes from all of this, there's just a multitude of outcomes. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating, fascinating time to be looking across all these markets. So, but we could go on for hours. Absolutely. Well, maybe we'll do a part two or something like that. But, um, you know, because I, 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 I really appreciate conversations like this because it's so easy for economists to get trapped in the sort of developed market bubble, whereas so much of economic activity is coming from, from this fascinating set of countries, it seems to be going forward. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Cullen. Um, let's, let's try and convene again. But in the meantime, you know, stay safe and well, and uh, I hope we can catch up soon. You too. Thanks. You've been listening to Conversations On, a podcast by BNY Mellon Investment Management. We hope you enjoyed the podcast, learn more about this topic, and hopefully have made your time working from home a bit easier. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you returning next time.